Coming up on Leading Edge. We have to break the mould of people taking the shortcut and it's just easier to recruit somebody who looks like everybody else there. If you're willing, you can think about the biases that you probably didn't quite realise that you have and what are you going to do about them? This is Leading Edge, a Henley Business School podcast. Welcome to Leading Edge, a new podcast from Henley Business School. I'm Thomas Mason, and in this series, we'll be equipping you with the latest tools and management thinking to thrive in the workplace of 2030 and beyond. We'll be tackling topics as varied as gig leadership or taking turns at the tiller, why CEOs are still not listening properly to their boards, how to keep staff engaged at work, how to improvise when there is no plan, and what to do when you realise that you're working for a robot. But let's jump right into today's episode, Diversity, It's Not Only Skin Deep. I'm joined by Claire Collins, who's not just a professor of leadership at Henley Business School, she's also its director of diversity and inclusion, her knowledge of which should certainly come in handy in our discussion. Claire, welcome to Leading Edge. Thank you, Thomas. I'm very glad to be here. Oh, we're glad to have you. And the central premise of our chat here is that there's more to diversity than meets the eye. I've been told when talking to academics such as yourself that there's organisations that should be thinking about cognitive diversity, neurodiversity, surface level versus deep level diversity, which sounds very interesting. But if we could just go back to basics for a moment, what is diversity and how do you define it? Well, I would define diversity as different. Um, There are 7.2 billion people on the planet, or maybe even more now, and we're all unique human beings. Um, This goes back in history um, as, you know, there were diverse dinosaurs. So it's (laughs) not anything very new. Um, And every... Every individual that lives is unique. So, you know, you and I are as different as can be. I'm not sure what the protected characteristics of a Tyrannosaurus rex are, but if we can think a bit about the the perceptions we have of diversity, you do a lot of work in the corporate world. You go in and give training sessions. And I believe that you have a special way of approaching these. It's that you don't introduce yourself but you let the audience unpeel the onion as it were tell us about that indeed i do i ask um whoever is sort of emceeing the event not to say anything about me apart from perhaps my name um and then i invite the audience to identify my protected characteristics um so we know that in the equality act 2010 in the uk there are a number of protected characteristics there are other characteristics that I like to think about that are not on that list. But I simply ask the audience to describe what they're seeing in front of them. So they sometimes they may not even have heard me open my mouth and speak. So they will say, um, and given that this is recorded and not on a film, um, you will have to take my word for this description. So the first thing that they will spot is that I'm female. You probably have gathered that from uh, this podcast so far. Um, And then they will start, as you say, peeling back the layers of the onion. Um, They will notice my height, my build, my blonde hair. Um, They will often notice that I wear a wedding ring, but... Of course, they don't know who I'm married to, no. uh, male or female. Wow. Um, and that's an interesting one because they make an assumption that I will be married to a male. Um, I am, but... <laughs> just we, so we, we know, thank just, you. Yeah, yes. but we can't assume that. Um, they will sometimes notice they or say that I'm Christian because I, I wear a small, discreet cross, right. usually. 
But what they can't do is go much beyond that. Oh, and the one characteristic that they always avoid is age. Now, we all have an age, um, but I am usually a bit more mature than most of the sort of middle managers around there. Um, So they're always terribly polite, so I have to encourage them to talk about that particular protected characteristic. Well, they do say you never ask a woman her age, so even though we're in a, it's the equal opportunities, I'm not going to start that here on Leading Edge. But what I will ask you then is, is diversity. How do we just make sure that it isn't some sort of box-ticking exercise in the recruitment process? So we have to make sure that we have the evidence base for diversity. And for a lot of people, um, I always talk about three levels of community. So we have the people who are very easily convinced, the people who are advocates for diversity, who get it, if you like. At the other end, we have the old curmudgeons or whatever age they are, curmudgeons, who it's really difficult to persuade. Um, And in the middle, there's what we call the coachable middle. And so we we want to try and produce the evidence base. If we can show people that diversity works in whatever value you put on it. So for some organisations, it will be their bottom line. Um, but for other organisations, it might be, you know, employing people, representing the local community, all kinds of different parameters. People who are doubtful need to have some convincing. Now, I believe that there is a moral case for diversity, um, but that's sometimes not going to hit the mark and you need to have some other parameters. And there are many uh, strong research, you know, evidence-based pieces of work out there now to demonstrate that there is a strong evidence base for diversity in organisations. Back to your definition then of diversity, you say it's about difference. Some other definitions I've heard is it's about reflecting society reflecting the population so if you look at the black and minority ethnic population you might have 13 or percent um in different organizations what are you looking to see what's the ideal is, is it getting to that reflective level or do you go even beyond it i think you have to be careful about the re- reflective level as what are you trying to reflect so if you're in an organization it might be useful to look at are you trying to reflect um your customers so what are, what are you making? If you're making toys, then you're probably trying to um, reflect that towards people of a younger age. Not necessarily. There are adult toys too, uh, video games, etc. But look at, your, look at your audience. Who are they? And try and get the thinking of that representation of that audience into your decision-making body. So it isn't about... I, I never believe in... We should be having quotas of this, that and the other. But we should have people who think differently, people who will challenge the status quo, people who will be prepared to be disruptive and, um, you know, throw a rock in the pond and say, well, why haven't we thought of this? Um, And that sort of thinking doesn't have to come from a box ticking exercise of having so many women and men, so many BAME people, so many LGBT people. Um, of course, we want to have that that colour in our organisations. Um, but the key is to have different thinking and to challenge the, the status quo, to, to challenge the notion of everybody has to, you know, I'm the CEO, everybody has to look like me because that feels safe. Well, that brings us on then to that idea of cognitive diversity. It's not and the topic of our podcast, it's not only skin deep. 
What do we mean by cognitive or indeed neurodiversity? Um, well, of course, as the name implies, it's the diversity that's happening in your brain. Um, so cognitive and neurodiversities cover um, a whole range of things. Um, so we might be talking about people who have um, dyslexia, people who are autistic. And we know that, for example, people who are autistic can operate at an incredibly high level in some situations. They don't like to be in highly social situations but where you need a very perhaps analytical approach to something um, autistic people can be so um, detailed about things have an incredible photographic memory let's look at those advantages that we can draw from different individuals and use them so it's the it's the the stuff that's going on in your brain the stuff that's going on in your head that actually makes you think in a different way and and challenge that status quo and when does being diverse translate to being a bit of a, a misfit in the corporate world just a bit of a rebel What's wrong with that? Well, someone like Steve Jobs would, would say absolutely nothing. Other people might look for a, a more uniform organisation where it's, oh, you're one of us, aren't you? Uh, yes. I um, I don't think in the 21st century that's terribly helpful. Um, somebody like Steve Jobs, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how I would have liked his mercurial personality, mm-hmm. but it must have added to the mix. Um, but having that difference of ideas the lack of conformity the the lack of pale male stale mm. thinking you know recruiting people like me all of that kind of stuff um that's 19th century thinking and if you want to build a factory where everybody does exactly the same thing um okay do that but you won't succeed in the 21st century where you have you know particularly um millennials out there demanding um that we have diverse thinking and demanding that we have uh, that that we break the mold and we move forward and be woke and all of those oh. kind of things well you say it's 19th century thinking but the mold hasn't been completely broken yet has it i think when someone goes into a job interview you believe often the judgment is made in seconds. I do, and sadly it's still made in seconds in the wrong way quite a lot. Um, There's a a fantastic story um, that came about when uh, apparently orchestral um, orchestras were principally male. I didn't realise this. I'm a musician and I didn't realise this, which is quite sad, um, until they decided to recruit a violinist by having them play the violin behind a screen and so nobody could tell what kind of person right. was playing the violin. An early version of the voice. Might have been a Martian playing right. the violin. But as long as they played it the best, that was what was important. Um, so having this same old, same old thinking, we have to break the mould of recruitment. Um, we have to break the mould of people taking the shortcut and it's just easier to recruit somebody who looks like everybody else there. It was a wonderful um, cartoon of a load of men sitting around a, a table much like this one we have here and there's one woman and the guy chairing the meeting says, um, excellent point, Miss Triggs, and now if one of the men would like to make it... Um, you know, so that kind of epitomises the the difficulty that we have of getting people out of that thinking. But there are things that you can do. Right. So you can take things like the implicit bias test um, that was that was developed by Harvard, and and that kind of sensitises you to your own um, 
bias, your implicit biases. And then you can, if you're, if you're willing, you know, willingness is a big thing in this. Uh, if you're willing, you can think about the, the biases that you probably didn't quite realise that you have. And what are you going to do about them? So how might you look at somebody different? How might you ask questions in an interview that will bring out actually what you need in your organisation rather than seeing the person that's just the package that's in front of you? I mean, implicit bias test, it sounds good when you explain it like that. But I remember recently at work, my colleagues, all of us, we had to do this online course in unconscious bias training. And, you know, it was one of those things we had to get on with our normal jobs. And this was another thing we had to sort of find some time to do. And there were a few eyebrows raised about having to do this course and what it meant. Um, How do you get employees to take this sort of thing seriously? The scenario you describe is not untypical. Um, And we have to talk about culture change in organisations to get people to take this really seriously. And one of the major things with any kind of culture change is getting um, sponsorship championship from the top of the organisation. If you don't have a leader who properly believes that diversity is a good thing, not just, as I say, the moral case, but the business case in whatever form that takes... um, you're not really going to have a good chance to succeed in the rest of the organisation. So getting your high-level sponsor um, to champion diversity and really to give a strong message that this is not a quirky thing to do. This is not just, as you mentioned, a box-ticking exercise or you know a trendy fad that we have to go through. But actually this is um, a serious issue and there... We need to represent all of the difference in society. Everyone is an equal human being. And so why shouldn't people who have different kinds of thinking, different coloured skin, different uh, sex or gender or gender identity, let's have all of their thoughts together. So part of it then, Claire, it's about checking our own unconscious biases, leaving them at the door, but it is also about supporting some of these people coming through into a workplace where they may be underrepresented. I think you've talked about the practical side of changing culture, how you allow diversity to happen, and that not just being about equality, but also equity. Equity is a really important concept, and I stress um, to everyone in it particularly in my role um, at Henley as Director of Diversity and Inclusion, we have to have equity before we can have equality. So it's um, that old thing about, you know, asking, setting everybody the same test. So um, a picture of a a group of different animals standing in front of the tree and the the person in charge says, uh, right, we're going to set you all the same test. I want you all to climb the tree. So the snake is fine, but the elephant is struggling a bit. Um, we can't all necessarily do the same things um, easily. So why don't we give some people support, extra support, tailored support, in order to allow them to compete on an um, on equal footing? So sometimes we have to give people some additional training maybe that's in in building their confidence building their resilience um, encouraging people to apply for jobs you know women are uh, renowned for not applying for a job unless they can do most of it where a man will apply if they can do only a little bit of it Um, so 
equity, you have to establish equity before you can have equality. And I think for organisations where they're doing diversity work, it's good to really think about how how they get the equity platform going first. If we can look at the top of the corporate world then, the FTSE 100 in the UK and the Fortune 500 in the United States, they're still a long way from tackling that gender issue. And I don't think I'm wrong to say that a FTSE 100 CEO is equally likely to be called Steve as a woman. Why is this? That's absolutely true. Um, About still only about six to seven percent of CEOs in those top echelons are women, um, which is scandalous, really. We have made some progress. So if we look at the perhaps the level just below that um, and uh, look at our own 30 percent club, which has started in the UK, but is now global. So the target for them was to have 30 percent of directors of FTSE 100 companies um, in place by 2020. And here we are in 2020 and they managed it. They've exceeded it, actually. So uh, other countries are lagging behind us, um, which is great for the UK to be you know, at the forefront of this, but the other countries really need to, to catch up. So we haven't cracked the CEO level yet, um, but the directors are coming up be- behind that. And... It's important that there is a pipeline of people coming from young women joining the workforce are being pulled through um, by establishing equity um, standards, you know, um, initiatives and all of that and pulling women through so that all through all of the levels we will have equality that sounds great in practice and i think you're absolutely right what gets measured gets managed so if you set a 30 percent target or a 50 percent target you can work towards it but i believe you think we're still a number of years or decades away from from getting to something like 50 percent of female ceos in the fortune 500 oh yes it's it's quite tragic the world economic forum have done some research on this very recently and the average time to get um, gender equality in large organisations is 99 years. Gosh. It, there's good news in the, in some of this, well, better news, let's say. In, in Western Europe, it's only 54 years. Um, I will be retired by then. Um, however, in some countries, um, Sudan, Iran, um, in the Middle East um, and you know, other other countries in that geographic area, the figure is something like 150 years because they have zero women in their political situation. They have zero women in senior roles in organisations. So we have to make sure that, you know, in our 54 years, that filters through. And again, just as I was describing in organisations, we can pull women through. We can make an example and say, actually... Uh, organisations do better, countries do better where we have more diversity um, of representation. And you think by 2030 then there are going to be, if we're not there, there are going to be enough examples of those properly diverse organisations, particular sectors, like you maybe think higher education. It's a bit like playing three-dimensional chess. So whilst it's 54 years for Western Europe to achieve gender parity, of course, that's not the case in every sector, as you say, not every every industry. Um, and in the UK, we can look at different industries and see where, where the, the gender split lies. So if you take something like 
construction, for example, it's probably going to take a bit longer. They're lagging behind in gender parity. However, if you go into the media or um, into service industries, the number of women in senior organisations um, is much better. And just this week, Unilever declared that they have reached gender parity in their senior management Um and that's over 14,000 employees globally. So there are some real shining lights in this. Higher education, actually, is very good for gender right. uh, gender parity. Um, not great in the gender pay gap, um, but in gender parity right. in terms of numbers, higher education is quite good. Well, let's talk about that pay gap for a minute. We've had some high-profile examples, I think, particularly in the media recently, and women have fought very hard to try and, for a start, share some transparency about this to help level them up essentially that's the way it's been um how far do you think we've got to go on that one quite a long way i think um the gender pay gap of course is is calculated on the average of all organizations so where you've got um some of these industries some of these sectors where you've got a lot of women in absolute numbers they still tend to be in the lower paid jobs. So if you take the average, women are still earning, you know, 86p in the pound compared with men. Um, You often hear in quite high profile leadership roles, a female will take over a chief exec's uh, position, but she's only being paid 75% of what her male predecessor was being paid. And we still have that barrier to to overcome. So there was one organisation, they had taken all 2,000 job descriptions and analysed them all to make sure that all jobs that were of equal value were paid equally. And that's that's the kind of thing that organisations need to do to really uh, address the gender pay gap. And does government have a role to play in this? We've seen certainly with gender pay gap reporting, now companies, I think it's if they have more than 250 employees, they have to do that annual figure. And in the, the latest results, there was very little movement, but it had nudged up slightly. Mm, it's, it's very slow. And of course, some had gone backwards. Um, government dev- definitely has a role to play. So... We know that in uh, gender equality and therefore in the gender pay gap, um, like my previous example of the 30% club, where you have strong government targets, you have development plans in place, so the the equity issue, making sure that people are being supported, um, and you have lobbying groups. That's the kind of three-legged stool of success to get to um, the equality equation, if you like. And just thinking, while we're talking about government then, there are some examples of very high-profile women in politics and the role they've had. I mean, one example, you've talked about Queen Bees. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, she famously not supposed to have done much to promote women in her, in her cabinet. So a Queen Bee is someone, uh, a woman who achieves her high status um, and then actively blocks other women coming up through behind her. Um, And Mrs Thatcher, Lady Thatcher, certainly has the perception that she was a Queen Bee. In fact, it's wrong. Um, She championed women during her time and set up a, um, a, a body to bring women through in politics. She just just... It didn't come through. The press was so strongly um, enacting her as a pseudo-male that this wasn't... It it didn't fit with their model for her to 
to say actually she championed women, but she did. And Theresa May the same. The, Theresa May has set up a, a, a group in Parliament to help young female politicians through that pipeline. Um, again, not not very highly publicised. And of course, Theresa May herself was on this awful glass cliff situation where she was taken on in a time of crisis. You could hear the the men's chair scraping backwards not to be um, appointed leader and therefore prime minister uh, as we were heading into to Brexit. So the woman got it and the two, the two finalists were both women. Um, so I think it's a misconception that these kind of people are not doing anything for women. Um, and it would be nice if the media would highlight that rather than hide it because some other message is much more attractive. Another one in the US, Madeleine Albright. Oh, I love I love Madeleine Albright. US Secretary of State, former. Former one, yeah. Um, there was another one, Condoleezza Rice came afterwards. So there's, uh, again, two strong women there, but no female president yet. Um, but uh, Madeleine Albright's phrase was, there is a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. And I think that that should be plastered on billboards everywhere. Because um, why wouldn't we help other women? And, and clearly she was an absolute champion of doing that. Now, she was another example of, a, of an iron lady because she was very strong. And you you have to be. Um, the the uh, the overriding advice to women coming through into leadership positions these days is to be yourself. So if you're quite a feminine woman, that's fine. Carry on being yourself. Um, if you tend to be a little bit more, uh, you know, masculine in in your presentation, that's fine. Carry on, do that. But it doesn't matter how you do that. You've still got to have a lot of resilience and a, you know the. Um, iron fist in the velvet glove kind of approach because you will have to stand up to um, criticism, sometimes bullying, all of those kind of things. So there, there is a strength of character that's needed even whilst you're being yourself. Now, one of the justifications or excuses given for the gender pay gap is often that women have to go off and have children and have some maternity leave. And that brings us on to our prediction, your bold prediction. What will be the biggest change to the way we do business by 2030 and why? Well, I'd love to think my prediction is that everybody has the opportunity to work flexibly. Now, clearly there are some roles that that's not very easy but where it's possible, everyone should be able to have a, a, a flexible working arrangement. And clearly at the moment, that's very much weighted towards women and childcare and all of that. But um, I was involved in a piece of research. It was one of my um, students. I supervised her and she, she did this fantastic piece of research called The Daddy Track. And um, she interviewed lots of men who were in heterosexual partnerships and right. had school-aged children. And some of the questions that she asked were about their approach to flexible working. And without going into the detailed stats, basically what they were saying was they, most of them wouldn't touch flexible working with a barge pole because it was going to be career suicide. And yet they were quite happy for their wives and partners to do that. So there is still that male-female divide in flexible working. But I'd love to see by 2030, which is only 10 years away, that everybody 
has the opportunity to work flexibly. It's supported by organisations and people don't feel that they're going to sacrifice something in their career by doing so. This is the daddy track and not the fast track. It's all the fast track or the slow track or whatever you want to to call it, but it's the equal track, I think. Um, So one of my real areas of interest is where you get dual-income families. There are quite a lot of examples. Helena Morrissey, for example, um, is an example of um, a a high-powered woman whose husband decided to step back from work and look after their family. And they do have nine children, so that was quite, (laughs) quite a job. A big undertaking for anybody. (laughs) Indeed it is. But where you've got dual-income families, it's much harder. So if both people, especially if their parents, are able to work flexibly, then that shifts the parenting uh, equation to be more equal, if that's what they choose to do. Well, like a few of our guests here on Leading Edge, Claire, you've mentioned flexible working. It's a theme that keeps coming up again and again. And and that's good because I'm going to give you now an extra day to prepare for for our next question, which is this dream dinner party. Uh, And I'm going to ask you which three guests, three business people would you invite to your dream dinner party? Uh, and why? And I'm I'm going to give you Friday off to get some food in and, and get the place nice and clean and tidy and ready to go. So, who have we got on our guest list? Well, first of all, thank you for Friday off. I'll <laughs> I'll uh, let my boss know. Um, so, my three guests are going to be Emma Wormsley, who became uh, chief executive of GSK, right, the so big pharma firm, one. in 2017. Right. Uh, my next guest is going to be um, Anita Roddick. I, I I want to bring her back for the day uh, for my dinner party. Um, of course, who used to be who founded the Body Shop, um, and my third uh, guest, who everyone will have heard of, is Bill Gates. Lovely. So let's just go into those for a moment. Then, so Anita Roddick, uh, she founded this cosmetics company back in, well, back at the turn before the turn of the century. What is it about her that you particularly appeals? Well, I was I had the fortune of going down to Body Shop headquarters um, a long time ago when she was uh, in charge there. And the first thing that struck me about that visit was um, we pitched up and kind of jokingly said on the car park, so, you know, where's Anita Roddick's special parking place then and where's where's her fancy car? And uh, the guy who had uh, picked us up from the the station said, oh, she doesn't have a special parking space and that's her clapped-out old Fiesta parked over there. So that um, that was different to right. start with. And apparently she just had this... Um, policy of you know having leaving her door open anyone could go and chat with her bring her um, ideas bring her problems um, and you know she she mixed with the 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 folks who were working very very readily and was very welcoming to them they had extremely low turnover um in the organization to the point where you know some turnover is healthy and they they had very low turnover and she was to me, just an inspirational kind of leader, the sort of the sort of leader I really identified with. At ahead of a time, perhaps, when it comes to ethical business. Indeed. Well, the, the whole brand was ethical, and I guess her leadership style followed suit. Excellent. So she's got a seat at the table. Uh, what about Bill Gates, so founder Bill, of Microsoft? Indeed. Um, so Bill Gates is very well known for giving away lots and lots of his money. Um, he's a, a philanthropist par excellence, um, gives 
rather a lot to medical research, so I think he's giving quite a lot to Cambridge University for research on um, malaria um, vaccines, etc. And I want to know why. why. Why, in a good way, has he decided to give all of his money away and um, apparently not leave that much to his children, although I'm sure they won't be poor, um, and why he thinks that other really, really rich individuals don't do the same. Money these days is centred quite a lot on individuals um, at the heads of organisations, Jeff Bezos, you know, all of those kind of things. Are they also philanthropists? What what makes Bill Gates different? Um, and why should all of that wealth be centred on individuals when they could actually be doing such a lot of good in the world? Well, indeed. And many of these high profile billionaires have signed this thing called the giving pledge that they're going to dispose of a large amount of their personal wealth cynics might say it would be much better if some of these big tech companies paid their fair share of corporation tax in the first place indeed that's true i guess they're two separate issues they should pay pay their fair share of of uh, corporation tax that's a uh, a social issue but as an individual what mi- what makes you need that amount of money when actually um, you could do such a lot of good and, and have such a lot of influence on doing good. It's not just about the cash. It's having the influence to change things um, and be disruptive in terms of uh, philanthropy and research and all of those things. And finally, then, one person not called Steve, <laughs> Emma Wormsley, CEO of GSK, the pharmaceuticals firm. Why She's made it to the top of the FTSE 100 as chief executive. Why would you like to have her along? Um, because I'd like to ask her how. How did she get to that point? What are her lessons? Where did she start from? Um, I mean, I could I could read some of that on Google, but I'd like to eyeball the lady and, and ask her about it. Um, and I'd like some to have that conversation that we were just talking about in terms of confidence and resilience and, and what... What have been the the milestones for her? Because she she must have had some enormous challenges in her life too. None of us can escape those. How has she overcome those? How has she put herself in a position to be selected as chief executive of such a large organisation? And she's still going through huge challenges. I mean, I was reading in the newspaper a couple of weeks ago about uh, what's happening in in the pharma business. as a whole, you know, in order to be uh, at the cutting edge, um, far, big pharma companies are having to buy up other companies who are inventing bioengineering these new things. How are those decisions being made and how does she, uh, in that position, how is she being a, a, a leader of this sector? It'll be interesting to ask that question. And I've given you that Friday off, so maybe a chance to do a bit of online grocery shopping or nip even on the Saturday morning to the farmer's market. Uh, given, bearing in mind the three people we've chosen, what what would be on the menu, Claire? Oh, gosh, that's interesting. Well, um, I think a hearty soup. And that would represent diversity for, for me. So something with a nice mix of different different things in there or maybe a a, a nice uh, tasting table right so even though the guests may have come from far afield bill gates perhaps getting in his private jet and um, that the, the food miles will be trying to limit them for, for our ethical dinner table indeed and i would hope that bill gates would make his way slowly on <sighs> some kind of public transport and rather right. than his private jet share a boat with greta 
Thunberg, Thunberg yes. <laughs> right. Well, lovely. Well, Claire Collins, that's been a fascinating discussion on what diversity is. We've learned it's certainly not only skin deep, but we have to check our unconscious biases. We have to think about disagreeing sometimes if we want cognitive diversity in the workplace and thinking about equity as well as equality. Claire, thanks ever so much for being on Leading Edge. It's my pleasure, Thomas. Thank you for having me. Next time on Leading Edge. So the piece of music has a shape, it has a key, it has a tempo. But if you buy into those three things, you can then start to experiment and improvise. The the principles that he's thinking about as a musician are expressed in everyday language that execs can think about as well. Leading Edge is a Henley Business School podcast. This episode was written and presented by Thomas Mason. Visit hly.ac slash leadingedge for more.